if you're really wanting to get exposure to the early stage asset class in a non-traditional way that's not just a passive large venture fund investment, you really do have to be aware of the time and effort it takes to not only source the deals, but really do your homework and understand how to approach the diligence. Not that we have a crystal ball and obviously early stage is risky, so we can't eliminate all the, the potential failures, but we can eliminate some obvious failures before making an investment. And that's a really hugely valuable part of trying to have a successful portfolio in this asset class. All right. Well, welcome. You're listening to Alternative Universe, a show for financial advisors, fund managers, and those who want to navigate the diverse landscape of alternative investments and explore opportunities that lie beyond the conventional. I'm really excited about our next guest, the co-founder and managing director of Venture South, Matt Dunbar. Uh, Matt and I actually met at a conference earlier this year, and we had a great conversation about the market. and, And I learned a lot about angel investing from Matt. And we're just really excited to have you on the show today, Matt. So thanks a lot for, for telling your story here. Thank you, Steve. Thrilled to be here. Appreciate the invitation. And, uh, you know, like I said, Venture South is very interesting to me. I think you guys have a very specific niche. Um, and then your role with Venture South, I believe, is, is extremely relevant for this conversation based on what's going on in the venture markets. But before we dive into what you've been working on with Venture South, you haven't always been in venture. So tell us a little bit about how you got here and uh, what maybe attracted you to this market. Yeah, thanks, Steve. It was mostly serendipity. I'm actually an engineer by training. So I did my undergrad at Clemson in chemical engineering, Uh, went to work in that field for Eastman Chemical Company in Kingsport, Tennessee for a few years after undergrad. Enjoyed that experience, but didn't enjoy it enough to want to be an engineer the rest of my life. And so decided that the parts of my job where I had had some customer exposure and really was able to learn a little bit about the business of Eastman rather than just the manufacturing uh, really intrigued me. And so I decided maybe I needed to go learn some more about business. So I decided to go to business school full time, rolled the dice and luckily I think I must have been the only South Carolinian that applied to Stanford that year. And so I think they were trying to cover all the bases as far as the states go. So I got lucky and and got a chance to go uh, go to business school at Stanford, which was, you know, as you can imagine, a pretty eye opening experience for somebody from South Carolina. Got exposure to world class people, uh, world class talent and, and minds, exposure to new businesses and new opportunities that I had no awareness of prior to that experience. Where did you grow up in South Carolina? I grew up in Rock Hill, which is just south of Charlotte. So Charlotte, North Carolina, so, just across the border is Rock Hill, South Carolina. Yeah. So growing up in South Carolina and then being there and then moving out to Stanford, I had a similar experience where I grew up in a town in California, Santa Cruz. Today, it's probably a little bit more considered metropolitan because we're so close to Silicon Valley and San Jose. I moved to Boston, where we live now. And when we first moved here, we lived just outside of Harvard's campus. And I remember this distinct feeling where I just felt like everybody around me was very inspired. And so I feel like when we were, when we're in these new, these areas of higher education, like Stanford, the Ivy leagues, um, they kind of carry this feeling. We're just walking through campus. You kind of feel elevated. 
right? Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it. Certainly there's an energy and a level of ambition and intellect mm. that is, you know, pretty invigorating. And frankly, you know, for, for some folks like me, and can be intimidating too. Like, wow, this, these are really, really bright people. But, you know, a great challenge and, and a great way to stretch uh, myself. And like I said, get exposure to things I had no wherewithal about prior to that. Uh, and so, of course, you know, being in at Stanford, I, I had some had some inkling that entrepreneurship was interesting. I got more exposure to it there, but I wasn't a tech person. I didn't have a great idea for a startup. This was also, uh, I was there from 03 to 05. So we were still kind of coming out of the dot-com bust days. And so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like everybody in our class was working on a startup, but I wasn't sure a lot of empty buildings in the, in the Valley during that time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. But I was intrigued by entrepreneurship and I thought I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but to, to finish answering your first question, the other thing that really impressed me was a number of my classmates that came out of the consulting world really had this powerful skill set that I thought I really wanted to learn more about. They could combine the analytical skill set, some of which I already had from engineering, obviously now focused on business as opposed to chemicals and, and manufacturing, but combining that analytical skill set with a really powerful communication skill set, I thought was really compelling. And so I wanted to go learn some of those skills. So I decided to pursue the consulting path, which is obviously a well-worn path for MBA students, but I really thought that that was a great way to advance my, my skills. I also discovered that it was a long way to drive from California to Clemson football games. My family, of course, was still back in South Carolina. So I decided to take a consulting job, but move back closer to home. So I wound up in the Atlanta office of uh, BCG, the Boston Consulting Group. So I did that for about three years and had a great experience, learned a ton. I feel like I did gain some of those skills that, that I was admiring from some of my classmates. During that period of time, I got married and my wife and I wanted to start a family. Of course, the consulting lifestyle is pretty challenging just from a travel standpoint in that regard. My wife and I are not big city people, so Atlanta was a, a little big for where we wanted to settle down and start a family. So we started thinking about looking at moving back to South Carolina. And I literally bumped into a guy who was working with a group of investors in Greenville, South Carolina, that wanted to put together an angel investor group. And at the time I met them, this was in the early part of 2008. I had some awareness of what angel investing was, but I certainly had no experience with it. And in our initial conversations, this gentleman who was part of this founding group of folks that were trying to pull this angel group together said, you know, we really want somebody with some, you know, investing experience. So it's nice to meet you and uh, good luck. We'll see you around. We're, you're not our guy. That was January of 08. He called me back a couple of months later. I was still trying to decide what, what was next. And maybe not surprisingly, there were not many venture capitalists running around in Greenville in uh, 2008. So they, uh, they were ready to get going and thought they might settle for somebody like me without experience when they were ready to get going. So we launched the Upstate Carolina Angel Network, UCAN for short, in April of 2008. And so, again, obviously, some of us remember what happened later in 2008. So perhaps not the most auspicious time to start an investor group. However, the silver lining was that we didn't already have a portfolio. 
had we been investing, mm -hmm. you know, for the previous two or three or four years, that might have killed us because that portfolio probably would have gone under during the great financial crisis. And so it actually bought us a little bit of time to try to figure out what the heck we were doing uh, over that yeah. over that period. How long from from starting in April? And, and I'm, I'm assuming that you started just by forming your network and bringing bringing angel investors together to that network before you deployed any capital, right? Yeah. So fortunately for me at the uh, at the time, the gentleman I mentioned that I bumped into, they had been working for the prior few months to build a network of investors in Greenville. So when I was hired that April, we already had about 70 folks that had said they were ready to participate in the network. So my job was to put the structure and processes in place to galvanize that network and, and start looking for opportunities to put capital to work. So I didn't have to start from scratch in terms of building the, the network. We had a good court group of folks, although, you know, that group whittled pretty quickly as they had to go try to save their own businesses as, as the financial crisis came on. But I think we made our first investment in December of 2008 after sort of trying to get our bearings and navigating the you know, initial wave of what happened with the crisis in 08. So UCAN is kind of the predecessor of Venture South. Exactly. So we started with that group in Greenville. Again, we went from 70 investors initially to about 50 over the course of about six months as, as the crisis reared yeah. its head. But again, we, we spent some time trying to learn. We, we spent a lot of time with other angel groups around the country and the Angel Capital Association, which is a great trade organization for early stage groups, which were still a relatively new phenomenon at this point. But we were learning as much as we could in terms of best practices from other groups and sharing deal flow with other Southeastern angel groups. And so over the course of the first couple of years of launching, we were able to establish our, our processes, our pipeline began to find some intriguing opportunities uh, from an investment standpoint. And so slowly but surely, we started to build our, our capacity to deploy capital. Those first couple of years, so 09 and, and 10, we probably invested a million and a half dollars, something like that. So it started small, uh, but again, we're, we're learning how to approach this asset class. One of the dynamics that happened in the aftermath of the financial crisis was that lots of folks were interested in trying to help their local economy by trying to create jobs from startups because it was becoming apparent as more and more research was published that all net job growth in the economy comes from early stage companies that grow quickly. Obviously, big companies have lots of jobs, but they're churning jobs at a faster pace than they're creating them. So the job growth really comes from these smaller enterprises that grow quickly. And so everybody wanted that for their local economy. There was also this new playbook around startup accelerators that had become popularized by obviously Techstars, Y Combinator, and then a, a massive wave of imitators of those models popped up all over the place, uh, including in, in our backyard in South Carolina. And so all of a sudden there was a lot of activity around accelerators to try to create jobs through startups, but it didn't take long for folks operating those accelerators to bump into the challenge that these companies need capital. Where do we find that? So we started fielding some calls, not only from within South Carolina, but from around the region. Hey, you, you've started this angel group. How did you do that? How can we do that in our market to get investors to the table to consider investing in these startups that we're trying to accelerate? Over the course of a year or so of those conversations, it started to become a little more 
evident to us that perhaps there was a different way to approach it than having these different markets stand up their own individual angel group, given that there was going to be still a relatively limited amount of capital in those markets and a relatively small pipeline of companies that fit the venture model. We started thinking about the economies of scale of our model. We already had a pipeline and a process. If we could just aggregate more capital, more investors onto that infrastructure, we could then surface the best opportunities from across that footprint and put more capital behind the best companies, which would then, of course, accrue to the benefit of everyone as we have more success and can recycle more capital. And one of the challenges early on is folks think, well, I just want to invest in my backyard. And so one of the other things we discovered that we needed to do was a lot of education because we were dealing with a lot of not only first-time founders, but first-time investors. And so really developing a, a program to help educate folks about how to think about approaching this asset class such that they could see, hey, if I want to be able to do this on, over the long term, and if I want to support companies in my own backyard, I need a robust portfolio that's going to generate returns that I can then recycle where I want to put that capital. If you just focus myopically in one town or even one state, in the case of South Carolina, you're going to have a much harder time having a viable model around this early stage marketplace, just given the challenges inherent and and the risk inherent in early stage. Just for edification purposes, tell us what is an angel investor when it comes to bringing someone into your network as an angel? Um, what does that look like for you? Yeah. In, in the broadest strokes, an angel investor is someone who is investing their own capital in a risky early stage venture that is not brought to them by their friends and family. So we think of friends and family investing, which is obvious you might invest, whether it's a good investment or not, because you love the person that is launching this venture. That's you know actually a fairly significant, not fairly, a, a massively significant amount of the capital that goes to work in these companies across the board is friends and family money. But if you're independently looking for opportunities to invest and you're an individual and you're investing your own capital in these early ventures, you're an angel investor. That term comes from Broadway during the Depression era when the creatives were looking for people to fund their Broadway shows when they, they couldn't fund it themselves. And so we think of this as, you know, again, folks with means that want to deploy it, deploy capital into these early ventures, as opposed to a venture capitalist who is someone who goes out and raises capital from other people, institutions, endowments, pension funds, and they're investing primarily on behalf of other people with other people's funds. Now, Generally, venture capitalists also invest a little bit of their own money in the fund, but the fund is 99% other money. So they're now investing on behalf of those, on behalf of the owners of that other capital, as opposed to an angel investor who's investing on their, their own behalf with their own capital. And then there's a regulatory wrinkle that we think about too, because in the aftermath of the, the depression era, we had a wave of securities laws get passed in this country and try to prevent scams and, and that sort of thing. And so now there's you know, a heavily regulated marketplace for selling securities, early stage equity investments like we invest in are securities. But of course, we're in the private part of the market, not public part of the market. So these securities are not registered on an exchange. So in order to protect investors from themselves, uh, the federal government has a rule that says in, in order for a company to sell their equity to other folks, those folks need to be what is called accredited. That is a term established by the, the SEC. Well, it's actually established by Congress, but enforced by the SEC. And then the SEC reviews it periodically. 
that basically says you have to have a certain amount of financial wherewithal in order to take the risk of investing in these startups because we know, you know, the the base rate is failure on on startups. And so you should not invest money in this asset class that you can't afford to lose. So the the nominal definition as it stands today is that an accredited investor is basically someone who can qualify on the following metrics on either income or net worth. For net worth, it's a million dollars of net worth, not counting the value of your primary residence. On income, it's $200,000 a year for an individual over the last two years and expected to maintain that income this year. Or if you're a couple, $300,000. So you can qualify. I heard a rumor, Matt. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. I heard a rumor that that income hurdle to be accredited has been the same ever since they passed the accreditation rule. Is that true? That is correct, I believe. So it was orig- that rule was initially established in the early 80s at those threshold levels. The only changes that have been made, to my knowledge, are the million dollars didn't originally have that exclusion on the primary uh, residence value. So you could count your, your home equity originally. That was taken out back after the 08, 09 crisis, and you had the Jobs Act pass and a number, number of other pieces of legislation like that where some of these rules changed. At that point, they implemented the change to eliminate the value of your primary residence. And they said the, the SEC needs to review this every few years because there was also a movement to raise the threshold. The original discussion was that they would index that threshold to inflation since the early 80s, which would have made the million dollars in net worth be something like three or three and a half, which would have wiped out 80% of the potential accredited investors, which would, of course, been terrible for our business model, but also terrible for entrepreneurs and our economy. Because, again, that's the primary source of early stage capital for these these companies that create all these jobs and bring new technologies and new business models to market. So it's really counterproductive to limit the amount of capital that's available to these startups. Obviously, we want there to be guardrails in place, despite the headlines with Theranos and FTX and things like that. In the normal course of early stage investing in angel groups like ours, and we can talk about the diligence we use to try to prevent some of those things, but there's very little fraud. And so our case to the federal government is that we should invite more people to be able to participate in this marketplace and have the opportunity to enjoy the gains that come from successful venture investing rather than restricting it and limiting it only to people who have an arbitrary amount of net worth. And that actually brings up the question I was getting at originally, which is you mentioned how you, you know, the network works on bringing together this, this group of angel investors who are willing to make these investments. And on the other side, you have this deal flow companies going through accelerators that need capital to grow and scale. But obviously, there might not be a lot of fraud, but there's definitely a lot of bad ideas, right? Oh, or yes. scalable ideas. Correct. Yes. <laughs> and then there's people who maybe have a good idea who aren't the best operator. And so that comes down to due diligence. And, you know, a lot of our audience are in the wealth management industry, um, working as financial advisors or working within groups of financial advisors. And I know from my own personal experience in conversations with these clients that they they work with a lot of high net worth clients or ultra high net worth clients who are accredited or qualified and interested in in making these types of investments and a lot of them will actually source these deals on their own and they put their advisor in a in a tough spot when they bring this deal flow 
unvetted or vetted on the golf course to their financial advisor and say, hey, I want to do this deal. Help me out. Now the advisor's in this position where they're probably not the best at due diligence, but they want to keep their client happy and they obviously want to um, you know, keep things interesting. So how do you all handle that? How do you handle the due diligence? Yeah. Yeah. Great, great question. So I will answer that, but let me first paint a little bit more of the context of how our groups evolve because that helps inform how we approach the diligence. Sure. Please. So I told the early part of the story, fast forward, we basically scaled up our group to where instead of being a Greenville, South Carolina focused group, we're now a regional Southeast platform. So we have almost 600 investors that are actively investing with us today across the Southeast. And so that network of investors is really critical for helping us not only source investment opportunities and obviously deploy capital, but we leverage that network to help us evaluate those opportunities. Through broad strokes, the way we approach the diligence process is that we leverage that network and all our connections to bring in a, a steady stream of deal flow. We have an internal process to screen that deal flow. And in our particular case, we basically whittle it down, that that broad pipeline gets whittled down on a monthly basis to a slate of four or five companies that we think look the most promising as potentially uh, attractive investment opportunities. We have those companies present to our network of members. Our members are invited to participate based on their feedback. Our preliminary diligence as a staff, we will down select from those candidates, typically one or two that then are invited to move into a diligence process. And in diligence, it's not just me or our staff that's that's doing the work. We're inviting participants from that network to help us. So across those 600 investors, we might have a dozen that raise their hand and say, I have relevant experience. Or sometimes we'll tap them on the shoulder and ask them because we know they have relevant experience or insights in that particular industry. Because we're, we're generalists. We'll, we'll look at anything that might have sort of the scalable properties that, that we're looking for. So we're not just software, not just life science, et cetera. We can look at anything we think is you know, scalable and capital efficient. Venture South is focused in the Southeast region as far as deploying capital. Correct. The investors that are part of your network, are they also Southeast or are they, are you looking at investors from anywhere? They're primarily Southeast. So we have okay. clusters of investors that get together on a regular basis in about 21 markets in the Southeast. But we obviously also leverage you know, Zoom and other virtual platforms. So we can uh, have investors participate from anywhere. And we do have investors scattered farther afield than just the, the Southeast. We've got folks in the Midwest and a few out West. We invite people to participate if you're interested in some of those folks have connections to the Southeast. They just don't live here anymore or they want a differentiated portfolio relative relative to maybe the higher valuations you'd pay on the West Coast or, or Boston, some of those markets. And so we have some folks that join from anywhere, uh, even if they're not local to the Southeast. But we do try to deploy capital in the Southeast because we think there's a relative scarcity of capital available to startups here. We want them to be able to grow and scale here. And because of that capital scarcity, we can drive better deal terms than you might get in a place where, you know, there's more capital chasing deals than there is here. But just to close the loop on the diligence process, so we, we run our process always with the involvement and participation of typically, you know, eight to 12 investors from our network that are adding their expertise and insights to help us evaluate these companies. And then, of course, they're leveraging their backgrounds and networks to, to bring in other experts that can help us from time to time. 
So we run through that process typically in a three to four week period. Uh, one of the historical knocks on angel groups from entrepreneurs is that they're inefficient and slow and don't communicate clearly about their process. So we're really you know, focused on trying to be very buttoned up in that regard and very efficient. As long as the entrepreneur is prepared, we can get through that process in three or four weeks and come to a decision. Well, we come to an output from a diligence process standpoint, which is a report we issue to the members, which is not a recommendation per se. We're not Again, we're steering clear of regulatory issues. We're not making a recommendation. We're identifying strengths and weaknesses and risks and opportunities. And then the way our network operates is we put that information out to the network and then everybody makes their own decision if they'd like to invest or not. And they're not obligated to invest in anything. So we're not putting pressure on people to, to do deals. We just find the best ones we can. And if our investors find them compelling enough, then they can commit. And if we have enough interest from the group, then we'll go execute the deal. And of course, we handle all the, the deal negotiation and structuring of the deals and administration on behalf of our investors. They can just opt in or out on any deal that they see. Understood. Understood. So what type of vehicles do you guys use? Are, are you putting all your angel investors directly on the cap table of these opportunities or you know, how does that work operationally? Yeah, good question. We want to be efficient for from the entrepreneur's point of view as well. And so, you know, our investors can invest as little as $5,000 in an opportunity. That would be uh, too much uh, for an, an entrepreneur trying to manage a cap table. We don't want them to have, you know, dozens of, of small checks on, on the cap table. So we aggregate those checks from our investors into an entity that we manage. We use series LLC so we can manage or hold multiple investments in one entity. And it makes it more tax efficient for our folks to just get one K one for many investments rather than a separate one for each, each particular investment. So we'll aggregate that capital. The entrepreneur gets one entry on the cap table from our network. We also have a series of what we call sidecar funds. So for any investor that wants to automatically diversify and or just you know, doesn't have the time to look at every single deal, but they want to index what we do in this asset class, they can participate through our sidecar fund. And so anytime the network invests, the sidecar fund will co-invest alongside the, the members. And so to the entrepreneur, there's typically two entries on the cap table, one from our network entity and one from our sidecar fund. Got it. So that keeps it simple for the entrepreneurs when they're out there working with you. Um, bringing all these people together, but then on the operational side for the investors, it also keeps it really clean, which is a benefit of becoming part of a of a network like Venture South. Exactly, that's part of the value proposition for both sides of the market. Is you know we want to help everybody be efficient and well structured, and you know minimize cost and and all those factors. I mean, I just love the concept. I love the work that you're doing, Matt. And and again, you know, for the financial advisors that we work with, I know that this early stage investing is really exciting. It's cool to feel like you're on the front line of something. But when it comes to managing wealth for a client, um, maybe our time isn't best spent trying to go out and find these opportunities in this deal flow. So, you know, for the financial advisors that are out there listening, if you're in the Southeast, you know, the great opportunity here to maybe introduce your high net worth or ultra high net worth clients to an angel group like Venture South um, as a way to kind of uncover this deal flow. And you still get to play the role of making an introduction to this type of opportunity and these types of investments um, without having to take on that operational burden or the due diligence burden of uh, sniffing out the, the better opportunities for those clients. So good work on you, Matt. Yeah, thanks. It is a lot of work. Uh, we've learned that over time, but it's a lot of fun. And obviously, we're, you know, we, our, our 
tagline slash mission statement is make money, have fun and do good. And, um, you know, we're really committed to all three of those things as part of our process. So, so we enjoy it. Well, before we wrap up, I'd ask you if, uh, maybe if there's three takeaways you could share with our audience from our conversation today, why don't you lay those out for us? Why don't we start with, with the diligence point that you made that, um, if you're, if you're really wanting to get exposure to the early stage asset class in, uh, you know, a non-traditional way that's not just a passive large venture fund investment. You really do have to be aware of the time and effort it takes to not only source the deals, but really do your homework and understand how to approach the diligence. Not that we have a crystal ball and obviously early stage is risky, so we can't eliminate all the, the potential failures, but we can eliminate some obvious failures before making an investment. And that's a really hugely valuable part of trying to have a successful portfolio in this asset class. So leveraging a network like ours and a process like ours, we think is very advantageous uh, for folks. So keep that in mind. I mentioned that we do a lot of investor education. If you're new to this asset class, just like anything else, there's a lot to learn, not only about the, the process, but also about the language and the lingo and, and particularly in a, from a deal structuring standpoint. There are a lot of nuances to understand about how we want to be smart about structuring those investments with liquidation preferences. And we teach a cap tables course to help people understand all the mechanics. It's easy to fool yourself into thinking that you have a particular ownership or outcome. But if you don't really understand all the nuances of how the deals have been structured, you might be you know, sorely disappointed with how the waterfall actually works, what it's time for an investment. Right. Um, you might be last in line and not know it. That's right. That's right. So, so that education part is really important. And then maybe the third thing is back to the make money, have fun, do good. You know, it, it can be a lot of work to invest in this asset class, but it is a lot of fun. And particularly for folks that, you know, want to share their insights and knowledge with, you know, a generation of, of entrepreneurs that are trying to create new businesses, helping them navigate the untold litany of challenges that, that come up for startups, uh, like any business. I think there's a richness there of being able to share wisdom and learning uh, with entrepreneurs that that's a lot of fun and you know a great way to just be involved in, in doing something dynamic and, and hopefully ultimately creating those jobs and, and driving great outcomes that have you know tremendous spillover effects for the communities where those companies are based very cool it brings us back to that original point we made about your experience at stanford and mine you know living near the campus of harvard i didn't get to go to harvard but i got to live next to it being around people who are just so driven and ambitious and it's inspiring. And for me, my experience was it was elevating. So I imagine th that you get to carry that on in your work um, with all these young entrepreneurs or not even yeah, young, new to. entrepreneurs. So Matt, um, something I, I think is always fun to end a show with, but uh, tell us something about yourself that we might not know just by looking at your LinkedIn or. So I always struggle with these kind of questions, but maybe my go-to just little fun fact is that the first time I ever flew in a plane I jumped out. <laughs> so I was uh, that is a good one. In, in college and joined the skydiving club and I had never flown before. So wow. that was pretty, pretty cool. Do you continue to skydive today? Oh, no, no. My wife wouldn't let me do that. <laughs> Those days are long gone. Maybe someday, but not, not anytime soon. One of my daughters uh, just asked me the other day if I would take her skydiving and my gut, my knee jerk reaction was sure, let's go. And my wife said, absolutely not. Are you crazy? 
but you know, I think that's why we, that's why our marriage works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got to know the we limits. Those checks. Got to know the limits. <laughs> awesome, right. Matt. Well, Hey man, thanks again for the conversation today. Yeah. Enjoy. Um, thank you everybody for listening to this episode of alternative universe. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth Technology and produced by Turncast. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Uh, for more information about Mammoth Technology and Alternative Universe, visit us at mammothtechnology.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered advice. The participants may have financial interests in the companies discussed on the podcast.